Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome to episode 101 of the Modern Bar Cart Podcast. I'm your host, Modern Bar Cart CEO, Eric Koslick. Thanks for joining me for another terrific interview episode where we ambush some of the best and brightest spirits and cocktail experts and threaten them with a good time until they share all their closest held secrets. This time around, we hang out with my friends Max and Eli from the Baltimore Spirits Company, and they share some of their extremely special juice while we talk Mezcal and Amaro. But before we get into that discussion, let's give you the opportunity, as always, to make yourself a drink. This week's featured cocktail is The Last of the Oaxacans, which is a riff on the last word cocktail using smoky, intriguing mezcal. To make it, you'll need one ounce of mezcal, one ounce of green chartreuse, one ounce maraschino liqueur, Luxardo is the most commonly available brand, and one ounce fresh lime juice. Since this is a citrusy drink. We want to combine all these ingredients in a cocktail shaker with ice, shake it for about 15 to 20 seconds until it's well mixed and chilled, and then strain into a stemmed cocktail glass. For a garnish, there's really no standard accepted option for this drink, so I like to play around a little bit and add a splash of color that really pops against the eerie green color of the cocktail. I find that a nice dark brandied cherry is a great option for this, and certainly a nod to the maraschino liqueur, but a thin ribbon of grapefruit peel could also be a really, really nice touch. One more thing to note about the Last of the Oaxacans is that it's an equal parts or perfect ratio cocktail. This means that if you want to dial back the ingredient measures from one ounce to three quarters of an ounce for any reason, it's really not going to affect the balance of the drink at all. This comes in handy if you find yourself using smaller vintage cocktail glasses that don't tend to hold as much liquid as modern styles. The main reason I wanted to feature The Last of the Oaxacans is because it's a great use case for Baltimore Spirits Company's Fumis Pumila apple brandy, which we sample later in the episode. And also, come on, you never have to ask me twice to make a chartreuse cocktail. So, now that you're armed with a smoky yet refreshing mezcal drink, let's get back to the main event. Our conversation with Max Lentz and Eli Breitberg-Smith of the Baltimore Spirits Company. Some of the things we discuss include why brewers tend to make great distillers and how a dialed-in focus on fermentation can enhance the quality of a distilled spirits program. How Max and Eli took traditional mezcal distilling methods and adapted them for making smoked fruit brandies that pay homage to both the ancient mezcal tradition and the native terroir of the mid-Atlantic. What the heck it means when you see pechuga on a bottle of mezcal, and believe me, you won't want to miss that. How to build out your mezcal and amaro collections in a fiscally and environmentally responsible manner, and much, much more. During this episode, we sampled through Baltimore Spirit Company's smoked 
apple brandy, and their limited-release Pechuga-style version, featuring local persimmons, black walnuts, and pawpaws. We'll talk about what pawpaws are in the interview. We also nose and taste through their three excellent Amaro offerings, Szechuan, Coffee, and Fernet. We'll have images and tasting notes for these beautiful products over on the show notes page at modernbarcart.com forward slash podcast. And if you live in the Mid-Atlantic or in any of the Western states that will soon carry these bottles, I highly recommend you pick up one or two for your home bar. With that, it's my pleasure to present this wide-ranging and incredibly flavorful conversation with my friends Eli and Max of the Baltimore Spirits Company. Enjoy. Gentlemen, thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks for having us. Our pleasure. Can you introduce yourself for our listeners and tell us the story of Baltimore Spirits Company and how, how you came to be here doing what you're doing today? Sure. Uh, I'm Eli Breitberg-Smith, the head stiller and one of the co-owners with Max over here. And I'll let Max do the, uh, the, the background story. Yeah. My name is Max Lentz. I'm one of the co-owners along with my friend Eli over here. And Baltimore Spirits Company was founded in 2014 with the doors opening for production in 2015. Uh, we were working on the project since late 2012, really. And for us, it was really born from the kind of vibrant creative community of Baltimore a lot more than it was born from the craft distilling movement. When we were working on it in 2012, there was no craft distilling in Maryland. And it really wasn't in this, we weren't really kind of involved in the scene in that way to where we thought we saw some people doing stuff, let's do what they're doing. It was uh, more that we have always wanted to be creators in Baltimore. It's why we live in the city. Uh, Eli was a founding member of the Baltimore Rock Opera Society, and he became a professional brewer after we spent (laughs) many years home brewing together after college. Both of us have kind of played a little music casually around town and just been part of the kind of creative scene. And um, so we're always looking for a space in which we were going to bring something new and exciting to the city. And when we started kicking around this idea of distilling, which was a natural progression from our brewing history, the idea really caught fire in our minds and we just dove really, really deep. Uh, so I think that informs a lot of our decisions. We try to do really creative spirits uh, and we kind of have done our own little path that might not look a lot like some of the other kind of craft distilleries that are out there. Totally, totally. Do you think that brewers who then become distillers are different from people who are not brewers and then become distillers? I I think yes. I mean, it definitely depends on the person for sure. But, um, and I came, you know, I was a home brewer, but I wasn't the, you know, I think you can break down home brewers into different types and there's like the more engineering focused type. And and I was never that. I was more on the flavor side, on on the cooking side of it. And so when I went into professional brewing, I kind of took that attitude with me. Um, But, you know, you learn a lot that way. You know, then when you switch over to distilling, I think you maintain that focus on fermentation. And I think that's a really important part for whiskey making, especially, and, and you know, anything that is fermented that, you know, you're trying to carry that flavor through, the focus on maintaining a, a good, healthy fermentation, creating flavors in that fermentation, and then getting that over uh, into a barrel or not, uh, but to get, you know, to do something interesting with it afterwards. Yeah, totally. One of the things that I feel very strongly about uh, you know, you'll hear about this notion that the barrel imparts some percentage. Right. We'll put percentage yeah. in air quotes, <laughs> uh, right, of, of the flavor of a an aged spirit. And regardless of, of whether we're talking about age, man, I am super zeroed in on the fermentation because I just think that that's, I mean, it's the first, it is, it is primary, right? And then there's so much that can be done in terms of like 
the microbiomes. There's so much that we don't see going on. And to have a really dialed in focus on that, I think just pays much greater dividends than having a real dialed in focus on your barrel program. Of course, having a, a good barrel program is great and it's important, but I, I think it's a little bit more intuitive than the focus on fermentation. Yeah, we definitely, everything we kind of designed the whole system to create a really flavorful white spirit. And I think that whole debate about how much comes from a barrel, I mean, a lot of that is coming from distilleries that operate in a different way than us. And so, you know, we definitely designed ours to, uh, you know, we have open top wooden fermenters. We use like a Belgian yeast strain. Uh, we're counting on some of that secondary fermentation to create extra layers of flavor. Uh, this is the whiskey we're talking about primarily, but, uh, but you know, so. Any sure. apple brand. Any apple right? brand, yeah. yeah. And so sure, like when, you know, a lot of change happens in the barrel. Most of the change from, you know, a lot of these flavors that we know at the end um, come out of the barrel and interaction with time in the barrel. But you're not going to get to something unique and interesting if you don't start with something unique and interesting. So, yeah. And totally. if 80% of barrel character, if we're talking about big bourbon makers, right? So everything from 7 to 20 years old, if they're saying 80% is barrel, there's still <laughs> a huge variation of very bad whiskey to really outstanding whiskey. And so... Who cares if 80% of a bad whiskey is barrel character? It's the 20% that's going to matter. So the idea that the kind of real key isn't your fermentation and kind of those early decision-making processes and how your stills work and all that stuff is, um, it doesn't make any sense because there's still a lot of bad whiskey, whether it's 80% barrel character or not. And especially, and because we use, uh, you know, classic copper pot stills here, we're also, um, you know, more, uh, you know, we're getting less of a, a refined spirit. And so we're starting with a different ester profile. It's gonna end up really different later on. I think when they're talking about that, uh, there's a lot of, you know, you're getting more of the cinnamon and vanilla and, and things like flavors like that that you expect from these big distilleries. We're getting a little less of that and a little more of something different. Totally, totally. So what we're gonna do here, uh, after we get a little bit more of your background and your story, is we're, we're gonna focus on a couple, couple things this episode. One is sort of the distilling approach to doing something that is traditionally done in Mexico, right? So you've got, some, you've got two spirits here in front of us that are like a, a smoked apple brandy, and then we have one that's a, a pechuga style. And, and both of these are really kind of interesting processes to begin with. with. With agave being as popular as it is today, I really want our listeners to understand those processes as they can be done anywhere so that they can really understand what's so special about not only your products, but also the stuff that they're getting from Mexico. So that's part of it, uh, kind of a little appreciation of this style of production. And then we're also going to taste through uh, some of your Amari, which is also a, a really hot topic right now in the spirits and cocktail world. So very excited to taste through those. Uh, but can you just talk a little bit more about uh, your company journey because when I first met you, you were the Baltimore Whiskey Company and you had Shot Tower Gin and you were kind of pumping out some some whiskeys as well. Um, when did the uh, name transition a little bit to, to become, I guess, a little bit more um, focused on different types of spirits as opposed to just whiskey? Well, oddly enough, from day one, we were focused on a, a couple of spirits. Um, the name Baltimore Whiskey Company, obviously whiskey is a big part of what we do and historic to Maryland. Uh, we're kind of part of a history here, even if our rye is not a historically Maryland style rye, it is absolutely a Maryland rye because it's 
rye made in Maryland, which is a protected geography in the whiskey world. So that's great. And we kind of, it was a nod to the, the fact that we really are partaking in an interesting history, but more than that, it was actually taken from the Baltimore Water Company, which was the first water municipality of the United States. Baltimore is known as the city of firsts because so many things happened in Baltimore for the first time in the U.S. It was this kind of birthplace of new stuff for a long, long time uh, and hopefully still is. So we wanted to kind of pull something from that. It was kind of just an inspiration for the names. We thought we were doing something kind of unique and, and new. But uh, even upon first first event, right, if, if you ever want to be annoyed, put up a sign that says Baltimore Whiskey Company and then serve people gin. And just watch what happens to people's faces when they walk up and they go, ah, whiskey, huh? And you're like, well, ah, well let's get a gin and apple brandy liqueur today. Uh, so we went through the first two years of that. Uh, that, before that, we had any whiskey, <laughs> that must be in, so. Yeah, in, our, our initial inclination was let's just fight it out. You know, like we can win it over. People just have to understand. But the the idea that hey, maybe this name is functionally not very great was around early, and we really love the name BWC and Baltimore Whiskey Company, so we we're really reluctant to move on from it. But when we moved the distillery, we've been talking about it for so long. There was this unique opportunity with this whole move and reopening into new space that a slight tweak uh, has really worked for us uh, functionally, so. Right, and I can sympathize, as coming from a company that underwent a rebrand for different reasons, uh, but, you know, it, it, it gives you a really good opportunity to kind of like reset the etch a sketch just a little bit mm -hmm. and see what works, see what doesn't. Before we jump into the spirits, can you just tell folks a little bit about this space uh, and what's so awesome about it? So yeah, we're now located at the Union Collective, uh, which is the new home of Union Craft Brewing, as well as uh, a lot of other cool manufacturers. Um, so basically, when uh, Union had been looking for new space and they couldn't find something that fit exactly what they needed, so they ended up getting a much larger space and asking other local uh, producers to come and join them. Uh, so it's uh, Union, uh, us, there is an ice, you know, the Charmery making ice cream, vent coffee, roasting coffee, there's a climbing gym, and there's more things on the way uh, that should be opening up this summer. So it's a really great place to come and visit. Uh, there's food, there's drinks, uh, you can even go for a climb, so. Right, exactly. <laughs> there's an order of operations there, right? You, you caffeinate, yeah, yeah. then you climb, then right. you reward yourself with an ice cream and recovery shots. Yeah, we're, we definitely have the recovery shots here, so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Your lower cal option to the beer. Yeah, exactly. Cool, well. And the distillery itself, really fun to be able to start from scratch again. Speaking of the rebrand, you know, in the old space, we were super bootstrapped and we would still consider ourselves that way, but it's always a, it's always a gradient, right? It's a sliding scale of bootstrappiness. So we got to do some really fun stuff here. So our entire distillery is geothermally cooled now, uh, which is really difficult to do in an urban setting, especially one like Baltimore that has a non-potable water table. So we are not engineers, but we're pretty good brewers and understand heat exchange. So we ended up designing our own little geothermal cooling system, uses 100 gallons a minute of well water, and then it puts the water right back down into the water table. Uh, so it's lossless for the water table. Um, and super unique, and we ran it by some engineers and some geothermal guys. They're like, yeah, that ought, that ought to work. And, it probably uh, uses a quarter of the energy we would be using if uh, we were using a traditional chilling system. So wow. huge energy saver and, yeah, a really unique system in general. Yep. Yeah, and, you uh, guys have a great setup. Um, you've had some great events here that I that I was able to check out. Um, so... I definitely recommend, we'll, we'll give the address and all the social medias at the end of the uh, the episode, but I definitely recommend people, especially if you live in the area, really no excuse not to come down here. It's, you can make an entire afternoon out of it. So let's jump in to the two spirits that are kind of like the south of the border production style here. Um, can you tell us what possessed you to 
attempt these spirits in the first place? Yeah, so we had all, you know, we had making an apple brandy or a few different apple brandy products was always a part of our, uh, you know, our, our lineup uh, from the beginning. You know, there's a long history of apple brandy making in the area. There's a lot of local apple production. So we knew that we could make a, an interesting spirit um, from that. Um, and then, you know, we were making the apple brandy and drinking mezcal. And we just kind of had an epiphany, really, that, that we could take, you know, our local fruit and make something that has similar flavor profiles to an agave-made spirit. Yeah, and we are kind of true mezcal nerds, right? We really love the spirit. Uh, and we were sitting around drinking mezcal while something was coming out of the still because uh, we we're always kind of working on our palates and doing blind tastings and talking through notes because we were always trying to kind of refine um, that whole sensory experience. And we were just thinking, you know, mezcal is essentially an unaged smoked fruit brandy made from agave fruit, right? Like that is one way to think about it. And it's a very old tradition, and we were kind of thinking, you know, we undertook apple brandy as our very old tradition. So we started thinking about, you know, mezcal has such a unique distillation process as a smoked fruit brandy, which is also its own weird thing, but uh, the kind of production process in general is so unique. Kind of what would happen if we took our very historic fruit brandy from our part of um, North America and combined it with this production process of this other very historic, very old fruit brandy from a very different part of North America and kind of see how the two spirits would interact. And we dove in. This is uh, actually the only spirit we've ever undertaken <laughs> where we did no test batch. We just thought we, the idea was so good and that we felt confident at that point, even though we had only been open for three months or something. We were like, yeah, we know what we're doing now. <laughs> uh, so we just thought, yeah, we'll, we'll just go for it. The thinking was uh, that we thought it would be great and if it wasn't, we'd put it in a barrel. <laughs> <laughs> see what happened over a couple of years. Fair, fair. So this is the, uh, can you pronounce this for us? Fumis pumila. Fumis pumila, yeah. meaning smoked Apple. apples. Yeah. Right. Uh, so let's let's give it a nose, I guess. Um, I, it, it's funny too, because right off the bat, you know it's smoked, of course, right? That's kind of like the idea of a smoked thing is like, you rarely want to hide the smoke. If you're going to smoke something, you want to highlight that. It's a very particular kind of thing. But you also, I mean, at least I really get the apple that comes mm -hmm. comes yeah. through. Like, like if, if you look at if you if you try to picture the aroma of something as a as a circle, right? Because it's it, it kind of is. You're you're looking right down into the circle of the glass. The, I get the I get the apple right in the center of that circle, and the smoke notes are kind of running around on the edges of that circle. If you try and visualize it. Um, and I also get like an interesting, I think if this was the wine world, I get a bit of a minerality to it almost, um, or... I think you do. I think that's the kind of apple eau de vie backbone of the thing. Yeah, yeah for sure. And it, and it runs into, we'll talk more about the distilling process, but we, we do run further into it. And I think some of that, that comes out later on along with those smoke phenols. I get, you know, I kind of get that smoke right up front, followed by a little bit of apple. Uh, one of the things that I think is, you know, we tried to do differently and, and you know uh, from and in the idea of using your local ingredients we try to use you know more American style uh, barbecue you know influenced wood for the smoking so we're not we don't have that kind of mesquite desert smoke uh, that you would get in a mezcal but it has more of a kind of we use oak uh, and cherry and a little tiny bit of mesquite but still you're using different wood because we're in a different place and that provides a really different nose to it as well yeah interesting I, I kind of get the the cherry the cherry wood mm -hmm. on this mm -hmm. that's it's got a very specific profile if you've ever had like specific types of if you if you've ever done an experiment where you smoked the same type of meat 
in several different right. types mm -hmm. of, of woods. You can really tell what that we imparts. Do, we, let, we lean heavily on the cherry. I love, I love cherry wood smoked um, as things as well yes. as food and otherwise. My and I'm I'm having some allergy stuff today, <laughs> which is always which is always kind of an interesting time to nose things because it ends up really compartmentalizing what you get. So you'll get like different flavors, or you get like really you know you find something you've never found before because you're not getting everything else. Yeah, and I'm getting a very intense nuttiness. Yeah, yeah, from yeah. My nose I, on this I, I that, that I've never really thought about before. Yeah, as it's opened up for me, it's definitely gotten more nutty. Yeah. Than it than it was when you first poured and. Uh, just a few other details about this before we get into production methods. So this is 100 proof, 50% ABV. In terms of warmth, it's literally right where I would expect it to be at 100 proof. When I when I tasted it before I looked at the label, I was like, this has got to be somewhere in the neighborhood of 50. It was, you, you get that nice heat like you would expect out of a Mezcal. So mm -hmm. def definitely true to category there. Um, yeah, and, and the, the, the palate, I would say, is... Like the smoke is is really, really there uh, in in the way that sometimes when you nose some of these smoked spirits, you get a little bit not disappointed on the palate, but it doesn't follow through. Here, it mm -hmm. definitely follows through. Blends the whole way through. I mean, you get smoke at the beginning, middle, and end. Yeah, really, really blending with that apple character. Yeah, for sure. So, tell us a little bit about how you make this, and and I guess if you can kind of guide our listeners through the production process and maybe tell where you are the same as people who are making mezcal and maybe some places where you make different decisions. I think that'll help them really understand what's special about the process. Sure. The main kind of difference in production style is that we don't have a pit that we're smoking everything in. So uh, we are kind of limited a little bit by by what we're able to do in that regard. So we, we get our uh, cider in from Brown's Orchard, which is up in Shrewsbury, Pennsylvania. And they bring down the apple cores and peels at the same time. So we take those, we put them onto a smoker that's a whiskey barrel that I turned into a smoker. Uh, and then we smoke those for a while uh, until we get you know the right amount of, of uh, flavor in there. And then we'll put those into the fermenter to ferment together before the distillation. So an agave, um, what are you always referring to is they'll bury the agave in a pit over open coals. Uh, mesquite would be a really common wood to use there. Uh, because you need to cook agave to break down the starches into sugar, right? Uh, in apple fermentation, the sugars are already ready, readily available, so there's not really a history of needing to cook the apples to make them fermentable. Uh, but we wanted to kind of capture some smoke because the side effect of mezcal versus tequila, right? In tequila, you're using indirect heat, so you don't acquire the smoke flavor and you get the nice, clean agave. Uh, in mezcal production, they cook it over the open coal, so you pick up all the smoke phenols that just get mixed in with the fruit. Uh, so we wanted to make sure we captured the smoke phenols because we're not doing a tequila style apple brandy. That would just kind of be a note to the apple brandy. We were doing a mezcal style. A big part of that's a smoke profile. So we smoke the apple peels and the apple cores. And uh, in mezcal, it would be pretty typical. Uh, you find fermentation done in a few different places, but wooden vats would be one of the typical places to do it. And we are um, kind of very happily uh, equipped with big wooden vat fermenters. Uh, so that was a really natural fit to do this. Uh, open air fermentation. Mezcal production typically would use natural yeast uh, that just exists on it. We do not. We pitch yeast. We have kicked around the idea of doing a very long uh, natural fermentation yeah. on, a, on a special release of Fumas, but um, to have a controlled fermentation because we want to dial the flavor profile, uh, we pitch yeast in there. Uh, and I'll turn it back to Eli for the distillation process, which is, I think, kind of the coolest thing that we emulate uh, really carefully. Yeah, that's that's really where uh, mezcal differentiates from uh, you know other spirits that I know of, and and it's when you're 
we you know we distill it once kind of in the you know traditional fashion just to get the you know get all the alcohol separated um, initially and then we'll put it into our spirit still and when we do that we um, we don't actually really do a tails cut so we continue running the still uh, until you know we get down to almost almost nothing like zero percent alcohol coming out of the still and what that does is that pulls out a lot of the really interesting smoke phenols and there's really some nice apple notes that come with that as well so that's really kind of one of the more unique things about it and so there's no water added into the spirit at all at the at end so you're everything all of the flavor is packed in there uh, there's no water added to bring it down to proof at all so um yeah, yeah, I think it really just makes it a very flavorful and interesting spirit, and and just really kind of unique and a little funky too, which is important. Right, and one just to clarify for listeners, so like you're talking about the tails. Uh, <laughs> a lot of people when they, when they hear about the 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 cuts, they they hear head, hearts, tails, and they think that all you're looking for is the hearts. Yeah. Right, it sounds it, it's logical, right? right? It's it's the two on the one on the front and the one on the end are undesirable. The one in the middle is desirable and then they also hear that the heads are the part that caused like the whiskey blindness right, right? so everyone's terrified of, of methanol and all that <laughs> stuff and so just following that logic structure a lot of people will naturally assume that the tails also contain something harmful but it doesn't right like yeah I always, I always describe it as a continuum you know because we're, we're doing pot still batch batch distillation so you know you start with a certain amount of alcohol in the still and you're pulling alcohol out as you as you distill, which means you're changing the alcohol content of what's left. The boiling point is changing. So you're just, and as you go along that, you're pulling different flavors out the whole time. The heads are, they don't taste good. I don't know about how much you're gonna go blind from it, but um, not at all <laughs> is the answer. Um, but you know, but as, you're, as you go through the hearts, the flavor is definitely changing the whole way. Uh, and it's really about getting the right mixture of of hearts and in you know into some of the the later on flavors that come out and eventually it's about not overwhelming your whiskey with those heavier notes um and that's whiskey making and then for this you really just it's just those flavors that come out later on end up being some of the most interesting part of it for sure and you know it's funny uh lefroy recently did kind of a marketing campaign where they put put something on their bottlenecks saying like tastes like i just kissed a, mer a mermaid who'd been <laughs> eating barbecue and it's like I don't know, Lef like when you put Lefroy next to this, like this is the mermaid who has just yeah. been eating. Maybe not a mermaid, right? Maybe maybe a something. Maybe a merman, uh, an, an, an apple orchard employee. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, this is this is really kind of brilliant. And one of the things that I like now, of course, I'm not representative of everybody. I run a bitters company, and mm -hmm. you guys obviously like bitterness because we've got three Amari here. But there's a nice bitterness that kind of lingers with this on the finish uh it's super long finish yeah there's a lot of sweetness too but the sweet and bitter are a really nice balance right and there's a there's a weird relationship between smoke and sweetness right like when you drink really peaty scotches uh provided you're not really turned off by peat uh they strike you as very sweet right there's kind of a sugariness mm -hmm. even just kind of a clean white sugariness to smoke flavor uh which really complements the fruitiness of the apple in our spirit but I think is much more because of the smoke than it is from the fruit, oddly enough. Right, totally. And apple-based spirits are, along with a couple other distillate bases, really prone to being flabby sometimes. And this is like totally not that. So I think you know, using the apple base and then doing that kind of true-to-form 
like tweaked for for the American like like where we are and, and how you, how you guys are building your brand and, and what you want to give to consumers, but like still doing that kind of traditional mezcal distillation is just a, such a great fit and it's so unique. If if somebody wanted to um, make cocktails with this, what would you recommend? What's popular? What have people done successfully? Yeah, there's a I mean there's essentially two schools of thought and they're both really fun. And one is to sub it into mezcal cocktails. I've got a, kind of a house daiquiri recipe, which is essentially like a margarita um, that's really fantastic. The smoke and our spirit and cocktailing, I find to be a little more subtle than a lot of mezcal mixology, where, um, you know, if you don't like mezcal, there's probably not a mezcal cocktail you enjoy because it's like it really, really cuts. And I happen to love them. Ours cuts a little bit less than that, but mm-hmm. a, but it's not a by any means, anywhere close to a neutral base for a thing. It's really going to affect the final thing. So I really like doing it in daiquiris, margaritas, mezcal negronis, uh, things like that, right? Like if you kind of sub it in for classic mezcals, you can see how it plays and adjust from there. And of course, the opposite end would be to sub it in for apple brandy, uh, classic cocktail. So I love a smoked apple brandy Jack Rose. Yep. Um, so they kind of, they you can... There's a lot of classics to work with, and they take a little bit of tweaking. This is higher proof than most apple brandies, right. so you need to like adjust your levels a little. But in general, it works really, really well with citrus. Yeah, that's like when you said daiquiri, I was like, oh, snap. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, great. And even if you think about the genesis of the margarita, as far as like David Wondrich kind of reports, it's like, well, like if you look at a margarita, it's a sidecar. And instead of brandy, it's, you know, the tequila, and instead of the lemon juice it's the lime juice i think it's yeah as far as i'm concerned all of them are are sour spins right yeah Yeah. absolutely so yeah that would be tremendous and another thing to like to keep in mind with something that has a a really robust smoke to it is that sometimes it's great to use in a split based cocktail so like take your negroni or your boulevardier and split it right down the middle or take take an apple brandy cut take your jack rose use half regular like mm-hmm. apple jack and then half this it's like man you can do so much with smoke in a split based cocktail and it's just a move that most people don't think of but in the cocktail world i think it's it's really just a it's a, it's a way to make it super unique and put your put your own fingerprint on it so if anybody picks up a bottle of this i i'd highly recommend messing around with that as you kind of wade into the cocktail waters um so we've got a handle on, I think, what mezcal or mezcal style um, distilling looks like. Now, tell us about this this next mark that, that we're going to taste here, and and what what makes this so crazy special. So I am about to pour the pachuga, and pachuga is something that most mezcal distilleries in Oaxaca would be making, and they would typically make it once a year. It's their kind of house. Uh, recipe typically no no two are the same but it's a harvest celebratory style of mezcal distillation where a mezcal producer at the palinqua would take their house mezcal once a year during harvest season put it in the still and then put in whatever fruits and nuts and spices are local to that farm or grown on that farm right literally that could be just be like from that it could tree, be, exactly from the tree. it could be a handful of rice and some corn and apples or it could be guava and pineapple um, I, I mean there's just like this endless variety uh and a big part of it is that most traditionally you would hang raw turkey breast or raw chicken breast in the still pachuga means breast uh typically referred to a chicken breast or a turkey breast because your animals are part of your harvest and this is a big celebration of your farm and what it gives back to your family and stuff and it's their kind of most precious spirit it's something you would drink at weddings or anniversaries or with very very close friends because it's kind of 
representative of, uh, you know, of kind of everything that you are giving to the community. So since we do a Mezcal style spirit, uh, it struck us as a very natural progression to do a true, uh, you know, true to the project terroir oriented um, Pachuga version of it. So we take our smoked Mezcal and in our final run, we put in pawpaws, persimmons and black walnuts, uh, all of which are native to Maryland. Uh, and we go out and actually get them or we kind of talk to local growers, but uh, they're all they're all kind of from Maryland and some sure. of them are actually wild. Uh, and we don't do raw chicken breast in the still. We do a salt cured Maryland country ham, about a 30 pound ham suspended in the in the still during distillation, which is about 18 hours. Uh, it's a very long distillation. Yeah, we go. I mean, it's our it's a once a year special thing. So we want to make sure we take that extra. Special we go as slow yeah. as we can. Yeah, that is just such a cool way to take something that is not even remotely American and just take it and make it your own. Um, it seems to be kind of like the way you guys approach distilling and, and putting a product to market, right? It's like taking taking this thing that is a great thing that already exists and saying, okay, what can we do to add to the conversation yep. and then give people something that they might not otherwise have an opportunity to enjoy? Yeah, we always want to be very reverent to history and to what people have made before but we don't want to just remake something so totally it's you know it's always interesting to see what you can do and especially something you know in maryland where there's a lot of you know local produce to and especially things like pawpaws that not everybody knows about or persimmons like we have we do have some cool fruits and, and things around uh, and options for flavoring that really um are just kind of unique and, and worth celebrating yeah the nose on this is just like utterly remarkable it's yeah, it's got like cool. you saying it, you say it's a, a celebration of the harvest and this almost to me has that like if you were in the wine world you would call this almost a barnyardy nose to mm -hmm, it mm -hmm. um, but to me it's like it's not like manure or anything it's like it's like fertility right like it smells very fertile <laughs> pawpaws have like a, a funky yeah, custardness sure. to mm -hmm. it um, I think you also pull a lot of salinity from the oh, country yeah. whether it comes from the country ham or not but it's certainly you you could think that the walnuts are all over it, right? Like it's really nutty in the background because we actually were, we really wanted to know whether the walnuts would come through. So we did a little walnut maceration before our first pachuga. Uh, and once we kind of had honed in on the flavor, it's so apparent that it's really, if you took it out, you would notice. <clears throat> yeah, for me, that's one of the most, like the binding flavor in there is that, yeah. that black walnut because it really just goes well with everything. And then you get that savory note uh, a little up front and a lot at the end. It's, it's funny, too, because sometimes when you think of walnut, you think of the heavy astringency of the walnut. And sometimes you get that in spirit. Sometimes when people fuck with walnut, <laughs> walnut does not play along yeah. correctly. And, and with this, it's like, man, you get you get those the oils. Yeah. And, and, you know, there's not a lot in there. It doesn't take much to go a long way. So Yeah, for sure. Um, and the, like, just, to, just to give a few more flavor notes on this, I mean, the, no, the nose itself is remarkable. Um, you, you definitely get, I, I, I get a lot of persimmon. I'm not, I'm not familiar enough with pawpaw to be able to like pick it out of a lineup per se. Custardy is a, mm -hmm. is a good note. It's sort of like, um, the flavor for me is sort of like banana, mango, papaya realm, mm -hmm. you know, but it has like the, the funkiness of, of papaya a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and one, one thing that's interesting to me on the palate, like I, I, when I nosed this, I was like, oh, super fruity, like really cool. You kind of get the hand, you get the fruit. I bet it's going to be very similar to the non-pachuga on the palate. Very, very different. Yeah. It's almost desserty. I get um, like a like a dr a little bit more dried fruit, like a jammy dried fruity type deal on the palate, and 
also, let me, let me go at it one more time because there's also this really intriguing, almost like a Nisi or minty style quality to it. Yeah, like, like in the same way that sometimes when you smell a rye, you get kind of like that caraway mintiness mm-hmm. to it, but it's very different than that. It's, yep. it's, it's subtle. Um, this is probably one of the most complex spirits I've tasted in recent memory. We, yeah, that's, what, that's the funny thing when you're, you know, tasting because not most, most people don't know what pachuga is and you're trying to like tell them about it and they, their first reaction is, whoa, country ham, that sounds crazy, but it's not a crazy tasting spirit. It's really balanced and complex. Remarkable and like, how yeah. it works. Yeah. Right. Uh, but everything really expresses and it's deservedly, you know, it deserves its own bottle versus the other one. Uh, and I, we think it's pretty special. We only do it once a year. Uh, like the original, um, our Pachuga is distilled to proof. So everything in the bottle came out of the still, which for both spirits is a really cool aspect. Uh, outside of Mezcal, I don't know that you really get that anywhere. Yeah, it's 53.4% ABV, uh, the batch that we're tasting, and uh, doesn't taste nearly that hot. Yeah. It, it, it sips like a 47, 48. So what's the price difference to the, between these two bottles? And I, the reason why I ask, I don't, I don't usually ask this, <laughs> but the reason why I ask is because it is a special distillation, right, deservedly. And also, like, if you look at Pachuga style mezcals on the market, they're... An arm and two legs. Yes. You're going to have just one, one working arm. appendage. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the original Fumas Pamilla, which we really want to be part of cocktail culture, um, we probably sell too cheap when it comes to it, but um, but it's really important to us to have the creators of the industry using it. So you find it on in liquor stores around 35 bucks, and it puts it in, in great kind of cocktail range for, for accounts. That's, um, that's crazy. It's I know. Crazy. It is crazy. <laughs> uh, the Pachuga in-house, you'll see it for 60 and depending on what state you're finding it, 60 to 80. Otherwise, it's uh, it's shipping. We're shipping a bunch over to California and Arizona and Nevada here in a couple of weeks. And I think it'll be closer to 80 over there. But it's a long trip. And there's only about 500 bottles a year. We feel like there's a ton of value in it. It's also fairly labor-intensive to crush up walnuts. And it, took me, it took me about seven hours to uh, process all the pawpaws. Yeah. Because they have these huge just, seeds in them. Oh, and yeah. you can't, can't get those in there. So you got to scoop all the seeds out vacuum sealed it and so we were kind of ready to go <laughs> that is yeah i i feel you yep, uh, yep. that is labor intensive you should try and get this into las perlas in la um i did a podcast with pedro shanahan who's part of the seven grand and that's one of their bars they actually do a mezcal collective there they do a podcast called the spirit guide podcast which is actually phenomenal for training yourself to be a better taster just by listening to something they get all these because they're such a big brand they get all these brand reps coming in from all over the world so it's a great educational resource but they also have a great mezcal bar in las perlas and i i mean to have something like this i mean they would want you not only to give them this for the bar but also to come and talk about it like it's it's huge so uh definitely check them out Great. absolutely awesome. well yeah man i don't want to i don't want to move on <laughs> it's, I, I hard, it's hard to move on after that i yeah. kind of want to linger on this <laughs> uh I'm, i don't i can't really think of any other excuses here is there anything else that you'd like to tell our listeners about well, we got the pawpaws originally uh from they were grown in baltimore city a friend of mine is a big pawpaw fan what's uh, what is a pawpaw yeah it's it's a it's an exotic well exotic looking and tasting fruit that's native to our area native to the you know ohio maryland uh, Valley region. So uh, and I got a friend who's from Ohio and he, he kind of introduced me to pawpaws. 
uh, and as we were, and actually I remember them when I was growing up. I grew up in, in Southern Maryland. We had them there, but we never we never ate them uh, for whatever reason. They're really hard to they're really hard to harvest. Um, you got to be there when they fall off the tree, basically. Mm. Um, so he introduced me to them, and that kind of like sparked the idea for the. The, the pawpaws were more of the inspiration than the country ham. The country ham came came a little later. When you're thinking about, um, yeah, with the natural Maryland like, protein that, you know, something historic we could put in the still. But pawpaws, they seem, you know, they seem special. They're, because they're hard to harvest, because they have this kind of really interesting flavor that, that is hard to nail down. Like, you know, you can't exactly pick out what it is. And it's not like anything else that I, that I know of. So it just seemed like something special yeah. to, to take advantage of. And what's interesting about pawpaws is, of course, this this whole conversation begs the question: Why haven't I heard of a pawpaw? Because it's essentially this weird mango that grows wild right? <laughs> in a big part of the United States. Um, and Eli touched on it, but uh, they're essentially impossible to cultivate. You can grow them on purpose, but they don't travel. Once they're, you kind of can't harvest them before they're ripe. And when they are ripe, they're going to be rotten in like three days. So the way the kind of American food system works, it can't doesn't have time to ripen on the tree, get to a distributor, get to stores, yeah. and get out on a shelf, right. and have 48 hours uh, before it has to be tossed. I mean, it's done by the time it gets to stores. So they're essentially this uncultivatable fruit. You can grow them for yourself, and they're really wonderful. You can also like go to Maryland State Parks and pick them off trees. Uh, you can keep track of the seasons online. There's a place called Paw Paw Tunnel out in uh, Oakton, Maryland. Uh, it's like a 3,000-foot-long tunnel. It's just like a... a train tunnel or bridge tunnel or something that's not always used anymore. But anyways, it's got, you know, it's historically, people people knew about it and, and yeah. used it, um, but we kind of forgot about it for a while and it's definitely having a little bit of a comeback. There are some people that are, you know, processing and freezing them, but it, it's super labor intensive uh, and, and they just really don't travel well. By the time you got through a big enough batch of them, you know, half of them would be would be bad. Yeah, well, and let me let me take a moment to explain to our listeners what's so special. Like like another thing that's so special about this pachuga is when, when you're trying to do what you guys are doing, trying to take something that exists in the cocktail or spirit canon, make it your own, and have it contribute meaningfully and respectfully to a narrative. That is super difficult to do well. Anybody can do it, <laughs> right? And and every and everybody tries. But to do it well is very difficult, and you almost need to have like some sort of poetic resonance with it, right? You need to find something that almost like clicks into place, and you know, like like you were explaining the story of like how the ham just all right. Well, what's a historical protein? Oh, the ham makes more sense than the traditional. You know, that's adding to the conversation, and so is the pawpaw because it's this almost like an anti-commodity. It can't be a commodity based on how it operates. Uh, and that really resonates with what the pachuga is because it, it you can't commodify. It's a once a year thing. And the fact that you're not just pumping this out constantly keeps it that way. Like that's yeah, a decision I, that probably loses some money. Yeah. And I think that, you know, I, for me, it's important to have some inspiration. You know, you can't just pick an idea out and do it. You know, we want to find something that really inspires us and, and makes us, because you're not going to come up with something new if you're not inspired. That's, right. that's kind of my opinion. Right. And one of the things that drew uh, Eli and myself to distilling in the first place is there's a we're a little bit of there's a little bit of a frontier that's accessible, right? Like we feel like there's a lot of open space for creativity and expression, and a lot of things that aren't being done that really could be done at a very very high level. And our list of passion projects is longer than, than we'll ever get through already. And like we have to kind of pick and choose. I'm looking at an imaginary list on the wall. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we kind of pick and choose when when we have time, which is not, not all the time, to do new stuff. But 
you know, in brewing, it's very hard to do brand new stuff. Now, there's always tweaks and spins and things that are done very well. And I think in brewing, the the current battle is which people are actually kind of doing it just a little better than everybody else rather than doing something brand new. Totally. But in distilling, it's a little bit of both. There's a lot of brand new stuff. There's a lot to add to the conversation, a lot of places to take things they haven't been before. Uh, it's very attractive to people who want to do new stuff. Who like And the reason our lineup is what it is, it's not because we get an idea and then run it against our values. We say, oh, it's not new enough. We shouldn't do that. It's because the things that actually light us on fire are the things that nobody else is doing because there's an opportunity to bring something new. And there's nothing more exciting than showing somebody something that they've never heard of that uh, nobody's doing and also have it be amazing. You know, it's funny. Uh, there's a kind of a litmus test that I think you can do as a consumer, as an informed person to figure out like why a distiller is doing something. And like what you were describing is you're like, there's still a frontier. Well, other people who are interested in that frontier are interested in it for like financial reasons in many cases, right? So sometimes there's that rush to get where nobody else is to find the white space so that you can soak up all the money that is available in that white space. And I think the litmus test that you can do as a consumer is to make eye contact with the product, to listen to the stories and see if it feels like the distiller is rushing. And one thing that really strikes me about you and your products is that nothing feels rushed. Everything feels like it's there, like everything is thought out. There's a reason for everything. There's a reason for the wooden open fermenters. There's a reason why you're doing, you're pitching yeast as opposed to doing natural yeast. There's a reason why this only comes out once a year. And that to me is a really important signal that says we're not doing this because we're rushing to make money on it. We're doing this for, for a reason. And I think that's, that's a good litmus test that you can run as a customer. Um, so with that, I think we should maybe jump into some of these beautiful Amari here. Yeah, sure. Amari. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you so want to we'll, do first? I think we'll taste uh, from least bitter to most bitter. Szechuan on up. Szechuan up. Yeah. Beautiful. Uh, Szechuan. So this is something I think most people associate with Chinese food. Yeah. Uh, what is Szechuan? What is what's the what's the flavor and why'd you choose it? So um, this will we'll get into some inspiration here, but uh, yeah. So um, Szechuan peppercorns are not even actually peppercorns. They're a, a seed covering on a flower. And the flavor is light and fruity and floral. Uh, there is this anesthetic quality to them that, that people that is interesting and, and an important part of Szechuan cooking. And people also will think of the Szechuan pepper, which is very spicy, but this is a totally not spicy um, spirit at all. But yeah, I was, I mean, this one, I kind of was inspired. Uh, I was trying to make something for my sister's wedding. And um, I came up with the, ver- the first version of that was, was for their wedding. And then I, you know, it was about a year and a half later when we released this. So we did a lot of a lot of uh, work in between to really dial it in to where we wanted. But I think it's surprising in the flavor profile. Uh, you expect something, you know, really in your face and, and really like, you know, not subtle. What it actually has is a lot of subtle, fruity, floral flavors to it, um, really kind of tied together by that Szechuan. Right, and you know, on the nose, the immediate flavor note that I get is like husky. Mm-hmm. It, it, it smells like I literally, several hours ago, I was, using a giant mortar and pestle to crush uh, <laughs> coriander seeds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And those have that very kind of like, it's a seed, just like mm-hmm. a Szechuan um, peppercorn. And so they've, they've got some of that same kind of like, it's 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 very difficult to describe other than, yeah, it tastes, it tastes like the husk, or it doesn't taste, it smells a little bit like the husk of that. And you get that beautiful floral white pepper kind of macy mm-hmm. aroma. There is some powder mace in there as well. 
Okay. Well, there we go. There we go. I'm not totally <laughs> broken. Yep. I'm, I'm only, I'm only broken on the inside. <laughs> <laughs> no, it still works. Yeah. Uh, cool. Well, let's. Uh, I'll take a little little sip of this. Now, talk to me about sugar because Amari, obviously, they're they're sweetened. How do you approach sugar um, from a distilling standpoint? Because you know, when it comes to the end product, I feel like the sugar profile is something that is really going to affect how approachable it is to consumers. And it obviously, the, the sweetness, which is a taste, not a flavor, has a very large impact on how the overall flavor is perceived. So how do you guys think about that? We have messed with a lot of different styles of sweetening. Um, we've, so we, we are also in constant R&D, right? And as we talk about the Amaro, we'll see how some of our failed R&D experiments turned into great experience that we pulled into the Amaro when we were working on them. Uh, but we've sweetened with white sugar, we've sweetened with molasses, we've sweetened with juice, we've sweetened with three different kinds of raw sugar. Um, we have done some caramel cooking experiments. Uh, we have bought a little test thing of glycerin on the internet. You know, we have gone from glamorous to not. These are very simple. I'd say we, we in general steer away from kind of cloying sweetness. Uh, we have a target that we kind of started with and adjusted. Uh, two of these are at those target and one of which we made uh, kind of very purposefully drier than that. Mm -hmm. But for our Amaro, we use raw Demerara sugar only. It's a nice, it's a nice. Yeah, Demerara is nice. It's, it's like a partially refined, so it's not quite, so there's like Pinella, which is totally unrefined. This is partially refined. And, and the nice part about it, I think, for me, is that it adds a little mouthfeel to it as well. The white, white sugar is gonna have, I think, a little bit less of that going on. Uh, and it, you know, it has a, its own flavor, so it's gonna add a little complexity along the way as well. Right, right. I do get, as this opens up, a little bit of orange on the nose, mm -hmm. which is yeah. really nice. Um, and, like, you know, you, you'd think of, like, a, a pepper or a peppercorn or a, any sort of spicy product that, you know, the, the temptation is always to see how see how spicy you can. It, it's a temptation that's sort of hanging in the clouds when it comes to spicy things. And yeah. what I like about this is that you very deliberately kind of avoided that temptation. It's there you definitely get more of the floral notes. I'm getting almost like a jasmine type mm. aroma and flavor right on the back of this. And it's, you know, just uh, just thinking about the, the potential cocktail applications for this, like to, st to stick this in, in a cool like rye Manhattan kind of format, like to swap this in for a black Manhattan. I know yep. we have a product that we might talk about <laughs> in that context coming up, but how cool is that? Like to it's be great. To... And you can kind of vary, you know, if you put a little bit in, then it's an old fashioned spin. If you put a lot in and it's a Manhattan spin, mm -hmm. um, works both ways. Our kind of, the kind of base concept for this, this is our lightest, most floral, fruitiest expression. So kind of in the Maletti or Montenegro uh, style, the kind of really light citrusy uh, thing. So we also like it in a spritz. Mm. Um, you've got to play with it a little bit, but works really, really well. I think you want a slightly less dry champagne than than with Aperol. I think so. Um, and a lot, you know, that also speaks to the sugar profile, right? I think a lot of Amari are made with glycerin. Uh, I don't know it for a fact, but there's something about glycerin that after I we got a little bottle just to like see what it was like, uh, after like tasting it and putting it in things, I think you can just get it when it feels slick in your mouth uh, and it has a very particular kind of sweetness. I'm pretty sure there's a lot of glycerin in there. And I was not using that. I mean, sometimes you have to supplement with a little extra sugar because it's just not as sweet as some others. For sure. Yeah. And it, when you said Montenegro, I was like, that's it. That's that's mm -hmm. the, that kind of orange yeah. that I'm getting. So so very, very cool. And I, I mean, like 
just thinking about thinking about peppercorns in in stuff. There, there's so many ways to do it poorly, so it's it's great to see um, like a, a really nice version of this. So. Yeah. And the genre, the genre is a really natural fit for us because it gets to do kind of our, our thing where, you know, we got into Amaro because we uh, adore the spirits and are incredibly reverent of the makers. So a lot of the kind of bases for our Amari uh, are very traditional and use a lot of traditional botanicals, you know, in our own kind of, and we arrange them in, our, in the way our own tastes kind of dictate with our own sensibilities, but they're all kind of taken in, the, in a unique direction and that's kind of one of the things that Amaro has always been doing historically, you know, it may have started in a very small region of Italy, but it's really made all over the world now. And it's one of the widest categories, you know, like we got into gin because you can do a lot of fun, creative stuff, but I mean, it's nothing compared to the width of categories and the width of flavor profiles that you find in Amaro. Yeah, for uh, sure. So what, what's this in so the glass now, the second mark here? The second one, uh, this is our kind of medium bitter. It's a darker flavor profile. Uh, we, we do three and really none of them are, are very much related to one another. Uh, so this is our coffee Amaro. Uh, I don't think the Italians really do any coffee Amaro. Now they do put Amaro in coffee, uh, but coffee <laughs> as a botanical is, there's something very American to that idea. I think the, the Italians are a little more traditional about they're not how doing, they they're think not doing about cold coffee. brew and lattes very often. Right, yeah. 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 The, so, but coffee as a botanical is a very kind of very uh, American world. style, new world, new world least, kind right? of idea. So this has a kind of a classic Amaro base, uh, medium bitter, but coffee, chocolate notes from uh, cacao nibs, a lot of citrus peel in there as well. Ooh, yeah, lemon. Yeah, the bitter, uh, bitter orange, yeah, and uh, sweet orange. And okay. the, I don't know lemon. No lemon. Interesting. Um, yeah, this is, I'm getting a, a bright note on it though. Yeah. So like there's, I think it's that, that bitter orange uh, has like a really distinct flavor that I, when I smelled it, I like got it really clearly this time. This is one of the spirits that for me that we make, I mean, I love them all. Um, but when, every time I have it, I'm like, oh man, it's, it just like jumps out of me. It reminds you like why. Yeah, yeah. 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 It, it was important to us to have it drink like an Amaro, not a coffee liqueur, yeah. which is a tricky thing to walk. If you're going to call something a coffee Amaro, you know, coffee really needs to be central to the palate, but it can't just be Kahlua part two with some bitterness, you know? So it's a pretty complex spirit and we think coffee sits really naturally in the center uh, without kind of being overwhelmingly coffee forward. For sure. And do you use a specific dedicated bittering agent? I mean, we're talking yeah. coffee here. Yeah, yeah. So we, there's one, yeah. So we have, you know, a, there's a wide range of bittering agents. We, we pick from a few of them, but the one that we feature in this, there's two actually, is Angelica and Oris. Um, and so we're kind of, that's on that more round bitterness, less on the, you know, gentian is that very back of the, back of the tongue, like super intense bitterness. There's none of that in there. I, I really love Oris personally. It's got that woodiness to it. And dusty. Yeah, dusty woody really blends with, makes sense with coffee. Uh, that's in the Szechuan as well, because it's a little bit less intense. It totally, um, it totally does. Yeah. I was, again, just had my hands deep in a bunch of Oris <laughs> earlier today. And it's like, it, it's so cool to be able to like pull out that taste and of like, yeah, it tastes dusty, right. which is like, how is that even remotely a compliment? And yet with the coffee and especially with the, the sugar in here, you kind of want a little bit of that, that woody kind of like, almost like a stemmy it's amazing, uh, flavor. It's amazing to me how many flavors uh, sound terrible but taste so good, like yeah. like dusty barnyard or medicinal. I know? use uh, <laughs> all eau de vie fruit brandies. I think they're, they're linked together by a soapiness, which I love, and I always tell consumers that, and, and I'm like, just not in a bad way, yeah. <laughs> and they get it. Yeah, just try it. You know. Yeah, yeah it's it's funny how we make meta, uh, metaphors with our brain, and and uh, you know, I think it's I think what's important 
you know, for listeners out there who, if you're trying to become a better taster, I think it's just important to be accurate with those notes and, and not, not judge, just, just be accurate, like taste, like specifically taste your spirit and write down what you're tasting, not, not a kind version of what you're tasting because you're trying to be objective here and just see what it is. And, and the only way to be objective is to, you know, fine tune your tasting notes to what's actually there as opposed to like vanilla or smooth or, you know, like that's, that, that is actually the allure of tasting notes is that you can write down something that would otherwise be taken really poorly and have it be a great compliment. Smooth. Yeah. So beautiful. Well, this is a really um, exciting liqueur for me. We forgot one thing, oh, go ahead. Uh, which is the, we use cascara in there as well, oh, yes. uh, which is that the husk of the coffee bean. Uh, and that adds a really interesting, uh, like earthy, slap, you know, hibiscus. This, the cascara we're using right now is also a little smoky. Um, so that's really a, a unique factor in there, which kind of brings it a little bit away from the, you know, being too much coffee. Um, I think, which is really nice. Yeah. 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 And it's part of the coffee bean. So it's a natural fit and it's interesting to see, uh, cause I feel like coffee drinkers and cascara tea drinkers are very different people, but it's interesting to see how the two very different flavor profiles from the same plant can kind of complement one another. Absolutely. Just in the same way that sometimes you'll use a root of something and then sometimes you'll use that thing's flower, the right. leaf, and right. you didn't even know they were the same plant <laughs> yeah, looking right. at you cilantro. Yeah. <laughs> Totally. So, um, well, you know, I think I think coffee's a dan- not dangerous. Uh, it's it's a tricky category because coffee's lo- coffee's a loaded, not term, but there's lo- a lot of expectations. Lo- yeah, there sure. there are a lot of expectations, and it, it's um, it's funny to see people react to it. But this, I mean, like just thinking about the cool whiskey cocktails you could do with that, with just a touch of it too, because I I don't think. Is 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 it a little sweeter than the Szechuan? It's not. It's just uh, just the profile it's there. Just yeah, the profile. yeah, we use the same like sugar uh, loading con- you know content. So because what what I got, I was like, oh, this is sweeter. But then when I like tried to check that against the mouthfeel, I was like, but the mouthfeel's not different. So I wouldn't assume there's more. So there's got to be a story behind this difference in sweetness that I'm perceiving. Yeah, I think it's cooking spice on the Szechuan side dries it out, whereas the kind of chocolate, citrusy mm-hmm. notes of the coffee makes it feel. You just kind of associate it it's with a the sweetness. sweetness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what's this uh, this last pour that we have? Uh, so number three is our Fernet, which speaking of expectations. So <laughs> if any of your listeners uh, haven't had Fernet, uh, the most famous brand would be Fernet Branca. It is a polarizing spirit and that is a very bitter spirit. Fernet is kind of its own little sub category of Amaro. It tends to be uh, more bitter than other styles, um, focusing on a minty flavor and it tends to be less sweet and higher proof. And ours hits all those marks, but we wanted to do a little bit more of a fresh mint take on the Fernet genre and a little bit less of the medicinal mentholic uh, mint that Bronca and some of the other Fernets have uh, really nailed down. Um, so ours is more a fresh mint, uh, licorice, and a very long, more bitter, less sweet finish. It's 100 proof. I think it's the only 100 proof Fernet out there, but still sips very nice. And we feel like, most importantly, when we finished it, that it really upheld the bargain of Fernet that it's a digestif, there's no mistaking it. It's a palate cleanser, there's no mistaking it. Uh, and it has the expected bitterness, even though we feel like it's uh, very much its own thing. And we've gotten some really positive responses from some uh, real Fernet nerds and some real kind of uh, bartenders that had high expectations when trying it. And we're kind of very proud of it. Yeah, you, you totally get the licorice on the nose. I'd say on the nose, the licorice and the mint are the two dominant uh, notes. And I, I get, there's a lot of uh, that, that same uh, bitter orange. That is really a prominent one for me that I really enjoy in there. 
Well, we had a bitter <clears throat> orange shortage last year, so maybe you guys are responsible. Maybe. You obviously, you <laughs> use a lot of it. We do use a lot. So what bittering agents do you use in this? Because it seems like they might be different. They are, yeah. Yeah, so there's, I still like to include uh, some Angelica in almost everything because it's just got a lot of, a lot of character to it. Um, but there's Gentian and Cinchona, uh, which are a little more, just a little more intensely bitter, which is important. You want that lasting bitterness slightly building uh, as you drink it, and uh, that's that's like very important to the style. Yeah, so. absolutely. And it really does build. Like it, it builds. Yeah. It's, it's funny how the the volume almost kind of like cranks up as yeah. as you yeah, sip yeah. it, which is like. I think that's kind of the hit. That's like the little uh, bit of adrenaline that I think that like bitter nerds like. Mm-hmm. Yep. Living on the edge. That's right. <laughs> How much um, can I take? Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, Fernet is a totally polarizing thing. And it's just because bitterness is polarizing. Right. right? Like, yes. we're, we're predisposed to dislike bitter things because bitter equals poison. And yet, a lot of bitter compounds have these nutrients that we're predisposed to crave. Some people like skydiving. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. My uh, my aunt, uncle, stepdad, and cousin are all going skydiving in like a couple weeks. I have to go out yeah. to California for a graduation. They're they're all. It's funny because they're they're going skydiving, and then like you ask me or my mom or like the other half of the family, we're like, no. Are you kidding me? Like it's totally fine here. The binary outcome is like you're either you're either gonna <laughs> land fine or you're not. I'm past and, the point where it's like something I really want to do. Yeah, I would do it. I would do it, but, but I haven't. I've lost the urge of like I'm not googling skydiving yeah, 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 anymore. Yeah, yeah, you know. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so this, I think, is that uh, it's funny. Um, I feel like you guys would appreciate this, but there's a term that I really like called benign masochism, uh, and the idea is to kind of like hurt yourself a little bit while knowing it's safe, like being a small business owner. <laughs> uh, Yes. Or is that just sadomasochism? Yeah, I don't know. yeah. It, we don't know we're safe. That's, that's the problem. Something. Yeah, it's different. It's definitely that's different. I'm, I'm in the middle of a 15 to 17 hour work day right now, so <laughs> I can I can kind of relate. But um, yeah, so that's that's kind of funny. Like it's funny. I had I had a friend named Mike who actually I think lives in Baltimore now, and he he once explained to me like why he was a smoker. He's like I like doing it because when I breathe in, I feel like I'm killing myself, but just a little. <laughs> and there's something to that with bitterness, and and Fernet is kind of the pinnacle of that, at least in the social consciousness of people who know about Amari. And so this is a really cool thing to be able to contribute to the conversation, knowing that you've kind of twisted it a little bit with that really fresh mint as opposed mm. to that more medicinal tasting. Yeah, it's a little. I mean, I, on the spectrum, I would put it definitely less intense than Bronca. I put uh, it on the approachable side. Yeah, yeah. We, we still want things to be approachable. We want to be able to pour it for somebody. Who enjoyable is, would yeah. be a word. Yes, that we enjoyable. Like to, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so someone that's never had either, um, or you know, or has had Bronca and been a little turned off or whatever, um, you know, would try ours and maybe maybe think it was a little more enjoyable. There's something about gentian too. Like if you think of Sue's, mm -hmm. you you it's almost got a lemony characteristic mm -hmm. to it, and I feel like that actually balances us out. Because if there wasn't that like slight sharpness that kind of uh, activates your salivary glands in the same way that that uh, sourness or acid would do, then you might be at risk for having something that's just dun 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 yep. in the basement, yeah, yeah. being deep and dark and brooding. But you've got that nice little lift on the end, and that's really carries through the finish here. So uh, I think. Like, having tasted these three side by side, I mean, I've had them before, but man, uh, it's such a treat to have, have a cool portfolio like this in front of us. Um, did you want to share anything with our listeners about projects that you are currently working on, um, special stuff going on, maybe events you're doing? 
there's an endless stream of things coming. Uh, things just matched a bourbon. Just matched our first bourbon. So um, if you are completely uninterested in everything else we do, including our uh, you know world class rye whiskey here, then check in on us in about four years. Four years or so, yeah. So. Um, so that's going in the still tomorrow. That is exciting. I'm always excited for new stuff. Uh, we just released a one-off Eau de Vie pear brandy, which we've got a little lingering, but we reserved half of it for a special project that. Um, is really not ready to talk about. Uh, but that's coming. We just distilled a Jennifer. Half of it went into barrel and half of it will be released as white. It's a collab with McClintock. Ah. Um, so we didn't Braden, get into Tyler. nerdy uh, whiskey talk, but you know, we took our low wines and traded those and, and, uh, and used our own botanicals on each other's low wines. So yeah, I will say that one thing I really like about Maryland is that the uh, Distillers Guild here is really good at collaborating and uh, you, you guys are all, are all pretty friendly. Uh, by and large, and, and that's very, one thing that I took open. out of the brewing industry uh, is that you know the brewing industry people are super collaborative, very friendly, um, and I think that that is something that, that that everybody benefits from. There's no reason, in my opinion, to be secretive uh, and and not friendly with your neighbors. So at uh, at ADI this year, were you at ADI? Uh, I was at the judging. Okay, uh, you're, that's right. I remember right. that. Um, you were on your way there uh, the first time you dropped bitters here, maybe. Yeah, exactly. So. I went to one of the guild talks and our guild president, uh, Jamie Winden, was part of the panel. And what was really kind of clear by the end of it is that Maryland's guild was so much kind of more put together and effective and collaborative than all the other guilds that were kind of represented. They were very kind of focused on infighting or had no real organization. And we're kind of, we feel like the Maryland community uh, of distillers is special and noteworthy and worth talking about. Um, we are we kind of really like to hold everybody up and we expect great things for maryland distilling and we hold ourselves to very very high standards which uh, we hope that you know comes through in our spirits um, we never have put anything in a bottle that that we thought wasn't ready and just and we'll just tweak it later you know we've we've <laughs> been in some positions where it would have made a lot of sense to do it um but we never have and, and i think that um there's a lot of other distillers in the state that are like that and kind of having people uh, you know, we, we want to hold other people to the same standards. And so of course we'll help. Uh, and other people of course have helped us, you know, but, but essentially whenever anybody's called another distiller in the state looking for guidance, uh, I think we're in a unique community where you'll always find it. Absolutely. And it's funny too, you know, you always hear oh, rising tide floats all boats and stuff. It's like, man, it's, it's one thing to say, but it's another thing to see it. And, um, you know, just the openness, like the fact that you guys had this beautiful, like, uh, educational program here where Nancy Fraley came out and did mm -hmm. this and, and then I got a call from from Jamie the president of the guild and was like hey we've got some open spots I'm not from Maryland I, I work with a lot of Maryland folks but just to, like to be able to, to come into that environment it's a, a real great treat for me so let's wrap this up let's talk about some advicey things for our listeners um, Eli just ran off to tend the stills yeah yeah the the little metal metal dragons out there. We talked a lot about Mezcal today and Amaro. So you seem to be a guy who has done a decent bit of tasting through that. Uh, for somebody who is maybe new to spirits and, and is intrigued by some of the stuff that we tasted today, maybe some of the tasting notes, do you have any recommendations for how to work your way into this space, which can sometimes be expensive or cost prohibitive? I do. And they're really both the same. I think Mezcal and Amaro are in similar uh, movements right now. Uh, so I think we can kind of talk about them as one. Right. I think in a lot of parts of the country, the best thing to do would be to find 
the places that are specializing, right? So Baltimore has some really obvious ones. There is a historic Amaro bar where not only can you, you know, go try a lot of current Amaro, but there's a vintage Amaro list uh, and there's similar Mezcal accounts around. Um, what spot is that? Uh, WC Harlan's would okay. be the kind of original Amaro bar of Baltimore. Uh, and there are more, you know, um, Amy Ward at our, at, uh, our bar. Uh, has put together a wonderful bar there, uh, and she's she's done a lot to kind of spread bitters um, awareness through the city. and And there are more. There's kind of more cropping up, right? But originally, I think W. C. Harlan's uh, by Lane and and Pam, who runs the program there, um, was was really kind of the original Amaro focused bar. And going and trying the vintage stuff is great, but I wouldn't say that as an entry level, that's what you need to do. You don't need to go. And, uh, you know, drive a 1971 Ferrari, you can just drive the regular Ferrari. Interesting. I would, I would, the Ferrari is a, is a shot, half, half Fernet, half Campari. There you go. Both Amari. So I would, I would talk to people who know, right? I, I wouldn't, now you may live next to a really great liquor store that's got a great selection, but there's a lot of Amaro and, and Mezcal both. Now, Mezcal's price has jumped quite a bit over the last three years, cool. um, but it's still not really prohibitive. Especially because drinking at home means that you're essentially spending even on a nice bottle, you know, two or three dollars a drink, just not a big deal. If it keeps you in, you're going to save money. Um, but I would say talk to people who have experience. Get your uh, liquor store's opinions if that's what you have. The best thing, though, because there's nothing like trying a variety and Amaro is such a wide genre that that going to a bar and if they can do half pours or anything, just try and try as many things as you can. And there's really so many you can try that are not cost prohibitive and there's no reason to jump up. I wouldn't say that there's a really direct correlation between price and quality in either Mezcal or um, Amaro. I will say in Mezcal, um, with the kind of proliferation of American distributed Mezcals, that some of them are not as traditional as others, you know, without kind of a lot of Googling, which of course anybody's welcome to do. Uh, there's not a ton of ways to kind of differentiate which ones are more traditional and ones that aren't. But I will say uh, skew to the higher proof stuff in Mezcal because the most traditional Mezcal, there's no water added to bring it down to bottling proof. Same as our uh, smoked apple brandies. And that um, typically you won't find below about 93 proof. Uh, if it's below 93 proof, they almost certainly added water to it to bring it down. So 93 proof and up, and that's probably a pretty good starting point. But um, it's a deep rabbit hole, uh, but I don't think there's a lot of like really bad mezcal out there. And there's really not a bunch of bad Amaro out there, especially if you start with the Italian stuff, the older brands, which can be very affordable. Um, then that's just a really great start. Right, right. Yeah, I think that's great advice. And I think, I mean, it's it's going to be tricky for, for somebody to, to put together a decent mezcal collection without spending a couple hundred dollars on a number of bottles. Uh, I would also say I, I learned something interesting on a podcast called The Speakeasy, Southern Teague, Damon Bolte, um, very, very good educational podcast. Um, but they were interviewing someone from Delmagay and something to look at with Miss Cow might be the presence of the word espadine. Um, this tends to be the most often cultivated type of agave, which means that the people who are bottling it are interested in all likelihood, in, in sustainability, which is a big problem in yeah. mezcal right now. So, if you're if you're concerned with that, if you want to vote with your wallet, so to speak, espadine is going to be the most common thing that you encounter, at least here in the U.S. Uh, and it's it's a way to at least somewhat kind of pat somebody on the head for doing something hopefully good. There's a give and take there, right? Because 
part of the allure of Mezcal is that they can use any agave they'd like, whereas tequila is blue agave and that's it. It's one species, uh, so sustainable and that people are growing it for tequila. Espadine is a lot like that for Mezcal, um, but I would say if you want to kind of broaden your scope, that there's, you know, there's pretty good reason to try non-Espadine things, wild agave, things like that. And some of the people who are harvesting wild agave are also planting agave. It would be worth your time to kind of try and understand who the uh, kind of environment conscious growers are. Uh, I would say that the producers are probably not the people who are most responsible for the depletion of wild agave sure. as much as the demand <laughs> of the distributors who are kind of asking them to do a lot more than historically they have. And right now, Mezcal's are weird. 15, 20, right. 30 years to grow. I mean, and just, you know, you can't plan for that. So we're in a weird space where the demand is higher than it's ever been. And so producers are asked to produce more than they ever have. Uh, without any warning. Without any yeah. warning, right? Yeah. And so there, there'll be some catch up. And, and of course, we hope that, you know, there, there becomes cultivation of these of these agave plants. And espadine grows faster, which is also one of the reasons that they are cultivating it versus some of the ones that take twice as long to kind of get get ready. But hey, you know, the, the good thing for us is that apples grow every year. And apples grow every year. So, yeah, um, that's those are some really good thoughts on Mezcal. I'm going to have to think about that myself because it's a category I'm also very interested in. Eli, my question for you in the advice category pertains to people who want to get their hands dirty. Uh, you came from a, a brewing background, obviously started with home brewing. What advice do you have for people when it comes to fermenting things, whether it has to do with yeast or with just pitfalls to avoid? Because I know that our, our listeners are very much DIY folks uh, based on the feedback we get on social media, via mm -hmm. email, tons of questions pouring in about, hey, trying to do this, what do I do? Um, I've, when I've got a brewer cornered, I kind of want to address <laughs> the fermentation <laughs> side of things, kind of take us full circle to what we started talking about. Yeah, I think on the fermentation side, uh, my, my advice is to relax and, and find out what's out there, you know, because there's a lot of, that's kind of, you know, I started off working in a homebrew shop. That was my first, like, my first step on the way to becoming a, a, a professional brewer. And, um, you know, you run into people that are so worried about every little step um, that they're missing the, the kind of enjoyment of the process and, the ma like, the magic of fermentation uh, and, and, you know, the flavor that can get created there. You definitely... You know, obviously, when you're when you're fermenting on for homebrew and everything, you got to worry about sanitation. There's all these things you should worry about, but that's it's not that hard to get to that point and then kind of get to the rest of it. You don't need to spend all your time focusing on on that like very nitty gritty. Did I, you know, sanitize this for the exact five minutes that it says on the bottle? Right? You just kind of you know, there's a there's a kind of threshold point. I've got a closet that's at 68 yeah, degrees, right, and I'm supposed yeah. to ferment at 67, <laughs> and I've just decided not to brew beer. And part of what, um, yeah, and part of what it kind of speaks to to me is the history of brewing. Like I said, I was an anthropology major, and I definitely am a history person. Uh, and so, you know, you look back at the fact that people have been doing, uh, you know, fermenting things for a long time, you know, seven, 10,000 years or longer even, uh, right. making beer for 10,000 years. And, totally. And, and fermenting wine and other fruits for a lot longer than that so you know people have done it before they knew exactly what all of the science behind it was and that's how we kind of came to the flavors that we have today so maybe think about what what got us to this point and what is interesting along the way it's funny i had a conversation with a guy named brian davis who runs lost spirits out in um out in la and he told me this freaking hilarious kind of like parable of how like yeast have actually evolved us yeah, like yeah. like they have trained us to keep them alive, uh, and so it's just such a funny take. Yeah, I, I, I like the advice of like just relax. Uh, I don't 
think that advice applies to sanitation if you're going to try and consume something. Um, but like you're right, well that's a, well, that's a really yeah, yeah. low hurdle. It's <laughs> yeah. a really low hurdle. Like sanitation is is a very basic thing. So right, once you right. get an understanding of that, uh, yeah, you really don't need to worry about that one degree uh, between 67 and 68 degrees. You know, so um, well I I do encourage uh, our listeners to get their hands dirty. I encourage them to sample your product. And as we close out here, uh, can you tell our listeners how to find you uh, digitally and in person? Yes. Uh, social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram is all at Balt Spirits Co. We are at the Union Collective, which is very Googleable in Baltimore City, um, right next to Hamden. Most people would just consider it Hamden, really. Uh, and then, of course, we are all over Maryland State in bars and in liquor stores. We are in D.C. We are in Illinois and Louisiana. And uh, next month, we will officially be in California, Arizona, Nevada. Uh, shortly following that, we'll be in Washington State. So we are slowly growing our footprint and very excited to kind of share what we're doing with a larger audience. And hopefully uh, more after that. But that's kind of the current news. Guys, congrats. That's huge. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks for being on the show. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is, the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here, and by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. You can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Bar Cart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips. And keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. This episode was made possible with editing and production assistance by Samantha Reed, distilling and flavor insights courtesy of Max Lentz and Eli Breitberg-Smith of the Baltimore Spirits Company, a cameo appearance by a Maryland ham, and a little bit of interview magic by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2019.